Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada is planning to significantly ramp up its immigration levels in the coming years. Some experts, though, are saying that, well, there could be some side effects to this that wouldn't be very good. Should we be worried? Indigenous leaders say the fight is not over as they look to cut the red tape around former residential schools. Discovery of more and more unmarked graves has many people concerned. Dr. Ken Coates, Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues at the University of Saskatchewan, will join us to talk about that. And why was Canada absent from a security pact between some of its closest allies? It's a good question. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As uh, we told you on the program last week, uh, Canada is now planning to significantly ramp up its immigration levels in the coming years. But uh, some policy experts are worried about what they call potential side effects, like things like health care and housing and the labor market. Well, during an interview with the Canadian press, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser defends his plan and says that increasing immigration will actually help Canada address labor shortages as well as demographic changes. We still have a million jobs that are, are open in the economy that need to be filled. And we have long-term skills gaps that need to be filled that we cannot fill in this economic context with a domestic labor source by training more people or engaging more people in the economy. Though we need to do that too. Um, if we're going to fill the gaps in the short term of the economy and the skills gaps in the long term, we need to welcome more people with skills that are going to be in demand for the next generation. Uh, makes sense to me and, and to a lot of other people too, but uh, some people are still going to be criticizing this and critical of this. Joining us to talk about this and some of the other uh, policies that are coming out of Ottawa these days, pleased to welcome back to the program Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me back. Let's uh, talk about the immigration story, first of all, and, and Mr. Fraser, Minister Fraser's comments on this. It seems that every time this topic comes up, uh, the, there's always going to be these voices that are simply going to say, you know, oh, these people are a drain. It's going to cause increased costs, et cetera. Do, do they not get it? That I think we've shown and proven, I think, time and time again, that immigration is part of the solution to our problem, not part of the problem itself. Yeah, it's it's uh, immigration is always the very polarizing. There's always going to be people saying no one should enter or more than they need to in, into Canada. And there are others who say, open the floodgates. I think there's always that happy median you want to find. And I think Canada historically is in that space, at least for the last 50 years. Uh, but I mean, I think the minister pointed out correctly, we have a significant labor shortage of a million jobs that are vacant. And a number of these skilled immigrants or non-skilled immigrants that come here to work and build a new life, uh, fill a lot of those jobs that uh, aren't being able to be filled by Canadians. So uh, how do we ensure that uh, our economy keeps moving forward? How do people, you know, the the cost of living is always a concern, but um, you know we 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 still need the the economy still roaring along, right? And if we have a later sh- labor shortage continue to grow and businesses are complaining about it, I think we need to do something drastic. I think the minister is trying to take an aggressive approach here. Well, and the other element to this too that rarely gets brought into the conversation, so let's let's us do it, uh, is people who immigrate to this country are not a drain on the economy. I mean, these are professionals; these are people with skills that we can use in this country. Uh, you know, as you say, they're going to settle here, they're going to raise their families here, they're going to pay taxes, uh, they may start businesses, they're going to employ people. I mean, this this is really how Canada grew in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, you know, even both of us have probably parents or grandparents that are immigrants, and uh, the whole point unless is coming uh, to a new Muhammad, country. Unless you're, and, an Ab- unless you're an Indigenous person, an Aboriginal, <laughs> at some point yeah. down your final lineage, you, you, somebody immigrated here. 
Exactly. And so everyone is seeking to, you know, they don't come here to just sit around and, and, and drain the system. You know, you might see a very small percentage of that, but if the vast majority of people are, are productive citizens of the country and are go heading to post-secondary education or getting skilled labor, a skilled trade uh, certification, um, you know, that, that, that says a lot about what the immigrant experience is in Canada. And, and, and we've had a lot of uh, benefit from it. And companies look at Canada saying, look, I can, I can tap into a lot more talent from an immigration side point than I can from the U.S. So why set up shop, you know, tech companies are notorious for this, for setting up shops in Canada because they have access to greater talent on a very inefficient sort of manner. So I think, um, you know, I think the minister is right to, to take this approach because, you know, a lot of businesses are, are struggling to find talent and, and labor. Uh, we can't wait any longer, and I think the economy can't wait any longer. I think there's there's a lot of domino effects that are taking place for, for this massive shortage, and uh, this should should help alleviate some of that pressure. Well, I, I find it awfully frustrating. I mean, sometimes, at least from a political standpoint, I think they're opposing it just because they figure it's their job to oppose everything the government proposes to do here. Uh, but clear-headed thinking here indicates that, that immigration is, is going to have to be something that we have to pursue if we're going to include our economy. And, and a lot of the problems that, that some of these critics are talking about, like, well, it's going to be a, a burden on our health care. Well, that's up to the government. It's not the immigrants' problem. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure we've all seen the commercials. That I guess it's pretty Toronto-centric uh, about funding for hospitals. And uh, in Scarborough, where they have a high uh, immigration population, they're saying they get like 1% of the hospital funding. Well, that's a government decision. That's not the, the, the fault of the immigrants. I mean, so let's, let's, let's put the blame where it belongs in situations like this. Maybe governments of all stripes uh, need to be more cognizant of, of how money is spent and where it's spent. But the bottom line here is that we need people here and we need skilled people to fill these jobs. Yeah. And, and the assumption is that uh, those who are coming to immigrate to this country uh, don't get jobs and aren't paying taxes. So the revenue in theory, tax revenue is going up. And so when they are, um, you know, densifying certain areas, whether it's Scarborough or in Ottawa or Hamilton, or whatever, uh, it is on the local and provincial government to figure out, okay, well, we need more hospitals because there's more demand and there are more taxpayers. So in theory, we are receiving more tax revenue to help spend on the very services that Canadians depend on. So increase, you know, from a proportionality, you're going to have to increase the number of hospitals and uh, schools and such. So uh, it's it's a bit pun intended rich for people to argue that there'd be a drain and we can spend more on healthcare. Well, I think one thing that's actually going to be causing the impact on healthcare is our aging population, which will yeah. also be leaving the workforce. And so you do need to resupplement that because you need a tax revenue to come in to actually compensate for that added pressure onto the healthcare system. I, I mean, if we had more time, we could delve into some personal stories. I mean, because there are some great success stories of people who have immigrated to this country and uh, and have flourished and started you know businesses that have multiplied upon multiplied and employed people and etc. And I, I know that and this is not a, even a political or a partisan issue. I mean, uh, even Doug Ford I think is a strong proponent of immigration now. And as a matter of fact, what did he have a meeting last month? I guess it was just before Christmas uh, with the federal government asking them uh, to please increase the number of immigrants allowed into Ontario. He sees the benefit of it. Yeah, totally. It, it's it, it should be a nonpartisan. I think it, it becomes partisan because. There's subsects of of uh, of society you know, along the political spectrum that think that uh, immigrants are a threat, or particularly it becomes that what kind of immigrants? And so this is where it goes into another layer of, of sort of racial 
uh, undertones where like, because most immigrants that come to Canada are coming from India, from China, from Nigeria, uh, not from Western Europe, not from the United States. And so the view is that you're having all these people who have different cultures and they're going to impact the cosmic uh, balance of, of Canada. Well, that's not frankly true. It just makes us richer for it. Uh, it makes us more diverse and more unique. And it's why places like a Hamilton, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal are such uh, desirable locations to live because it has such a, um, a mosaic of people that really help strengthen the, the culture of the, those regions in the country. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, there's going to be racist overtones to almost everything. Even in those early days of, of Canada, as you mentioned, when the majority, the overwhelming majority of, of immigrants came from Western Europe or from the UK, uh, and there was there was a racist attitude toward the Irish, toward Ukrainians. I mean, you, there are a number of stories about that. And we can't let that define us. We can't let that define policy. Correct. And, and we have to sort of continue to look towards where where is the trends coming from. And, and quite frankly, some of these immigrants are also, to your point, you know, uh, becoming doctors, becoming teachers, sure. becoming engineers, becoming business leaders and such. Uh, and even also just the, the general skill labor pool that we need to get things done. And so it's uh, there's a lot of success stories in on the immigration side uh, that we don't uh, spend enough talking about has not uh, penetrated into the psyche of, of those who think that immigration has some sort of in, inherent negative uh, tone to to uh, for Canada. Well, and I guess we're always going to have you know, politicians who are going to you know try to appeal to the, the lowest political common denominator here. Uh, but you know, I don't know if we can do anything about that. But we can ignore them. Uh, maybe it's about the best thing. Uh, with Muhammad Ali uh, from uh, Crestview Strategies, uh, got uh, something else too about hanging on to issues. Uh, the story this week, of course, about uh, consulting spending and, and the amount of money that's being spent. And uh, we're talking about a company here called uh, McKinsey, uh, which is a, a consultant party that's a company that's been used not just by the liberals. I mean, the Harper government used these uh, people as well. But uh, Mr. Pauly, I was making a big deal of the fact uh, that the amount of money he's spending here uh, is significant. And they're shooting, I guess the, some of the conservatives are calling for an investigation into it, et cetera. Uh, we've been down this road before. Does the public really care about these sorts of things? I think the short answer is no. Uh, I think it's it's a story because of who it's uh, who they're trying to tie it to. Uh, Dominic Barton, the former global chairman of uh, of McKinsey was became uh, a you know close advisor from an economic perspective to this government, particularly the former finance minister Bill Morneau, uh, and then then became the ambassador to China for Canada. Uh, and so there is a little bit more of a of a spiciness, if that's the right word to use here, uh, of why people really care and why you know opposition should rightfully check into this. You know, it's a lot of money going into consultants, but I think there's there's more to it. Uh, and simply just stating that, oh, the government is sort of giving out checks to one one particular company because in theory, or actually in reality, they have consultants from different companies who support on different uh, uh, parts of the of the public service, whether it's for operational policy, accounting, auditing, whatever it may be. There, there are consultants used for uh, a number of different consulting companies used for diff- different services. Well, and it just about any time there's going to be a report or, as you say, an evaluation of government spending or government performance, uh, usually it's done through the Auditor General's office, both federally and provincially. And and invariably, we know 
that a good deal of that is going to be focused on on the money that's spent on consulting. And it's, it's something that I, I, I guess a lot of people are, are bugged about and say, why do you have to hire consultants when you've got this huge civil service, et cetera? And uh, so we're going to have that discussion again and that debate again and some justification for this. But uh, as you mentioned, there seem to be political overtones to this. Uh, if you said no more government spending on, on consultants, uh, how, how would that impact government? I think it would have an impact that people just don't realize. I think this is one of the challenges. The public service is having, just like the rest of the economy, uh, uh, a challenge in recruiting new talent into the public service, finding people to, you know, to hire. I think that's, you know, whether that's, you can make the argument about whether that's self-inflicted or not, but they are facing that challenge. And often consultants are, are, are brought in on a temporary basis to help sort of cover these gaps uh, to ensure work can continue to be done. So the services that Canadians need or policy analysis, economic analysis, or operational needs or HR, whatever it may be that, you know, the things that public service has to do keeps getting done. And so that's where the consultants of neurology brought into. And sometimes they're, um, they're more cost effective at times because there's less sort of long-term uh, need for them. Uh, whether like, just like, you know, if you're hiring someone, you're not hiring them for a month. You're hiring them for indefinite because that's usually the contract word unless whatever. But a consultant can be very short term. Like I need you for two months to do X, Y, Z because the next person is starting at that point. So it's it's to it's to help fill, fill gaps and bring expertise so that things are done efficiently as well in theory. And I know that one of the points that they brought up, and I think it's a legitimate point to, to get some questions answered, uh, are sole sourcing some of the contracts or, or the, as you say, the length of, of the contract itself and things of that nature. Uh, and, and all governments have been guilty of that, uh, of all political stripes. But uh, I guess, you know, it, it falls under the guise of let's, let's do this in a more transparent fashion so we can all understand what's going on. And invariably, the government will agree to that and, and we'll move on. But I think we saw this, uh, I guess, over the last couple of years with the, the SNC-Lavalin thing that certainly raised some questions. Uh, and then the WE charity. The opposition always tries to make a big deal and say, ah, this is it. It's going to bring the government down. And it seemed to have little or no impact on the voters. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it depends on how significant the, the issue is. I think this is sort of a, oh, this is, you know, contracts are contracts. I think the, the SNC Lavon store, I think, was a little bit more given the the Jody Wilson-Raybould dynamic yeah. that existed from a cabinet perspective. So there was just a little bit more more to that story versus this one. Now, I guess we'll see things would be unpacked. But from what it seems, all things were passed. You know, everything was kosher. Uh, it was simply just the fact that it was you. This company was used a lot more than normally it would be, uh, and the value of the contract. So I think it's totally fair as a job of of parliament to assess and make sure that you know every dollar spent is is used respectfully. Uh, and I guess we'll probably find out in the near term when when committees start to assess this and ministers start to unpack it, because the prime minister himself has directed his ministers to uh, understand why is it that we're spending this money and what have we gotten out of it? Have we gotten what we need out of it? So we'll, we'll probably get some more uh, insight and, and, and views from government and from this investigation into what, what, what causes high spend on, um, on McKinsey. Mohammed Ali, a seat and consultant for our Crestview Strategies. Mohammed, as always, thank you so much for uh, your time and your insight into this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a First Nations located in Kenora, Ontario, says it has discovered what they call anomalies on the grounds of a former residential school, uh, namely at uh, St. Mary's Indian Residential School. 
And uh, this, of course, as negotiations and discussions are continuing about the truth and reconciliation and about other discoveries in the last little while. Well, the woman who was appointed to help First Nations investigate unmarked graves of Aaron Residential Schools says documents will tell the history of the genocide of Indigenous people. At a national gathering on unmarked uh, burials in Vancouver, Kimberly Murray told the crowd, there are many hard questions that need to be answered. Who are the children that died? What did the children die from? Where are the children buried? And how many, how many little ones died and still are missing? Uh, questions that we've been asking for months now, uh, well, for years, I guess, in some cases. So where are we in this process? So joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ken Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates is a Canada Research Chair with the Johnson Shyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's also a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today. Always great to be with you. We've been talking about this for since the discovery of the graves in BC, and there was a great outpouring of sympathy and support at that time. But the overriding question, uh, even with the papal visit, was we have to get the information. Why can't we get the information? Uh, and we just heard uh, from uh, uh, the, the, the lady who's in charge of the investigation, Kimberly Murray, uh, helping out with this. I'm, I'm getting a sense of frustration even as, from her, and she hasn't been at the job that long now. Where are we on this process, and how frustrating has it been? Well, it's deeply frustrating because it's actually so profoundly emotional. Um, this is a situation where where we knew lots of children died at residential school. That 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 data has been around in a general sort of way for a very very long time. People who studied individual schools, uh, the residential movement generally, knew that dozens, hundreds of in, of children died, mostly from disease um, and epidemics that came through. Um, what's what's getting people angry right now is that. This issue became so front and center after the Kamloops discovery, which wasn't all that long ago. And, and the urgency seems to have been gone to, from everybody except the First Nations. So we just had more discoveries here in the province of Saskatchewan. Um, we've had more, and we're going to get more as these, these things go along. Um, what is upsetting is, is not just the fact that we, we're still having trouble getting data, having trouble identifying the remains. This is not easy stuff to do. This is sort of forensic archaeology at the at that most most difficult sort of level. It's the fact that nobody else seems to care as much as the First Nations. And this is traumatizing. It's enough to discover the children, you know, passed away in, in residential school. That's horrible. But to also then discover that nobody kept track of their grave sites, that there is no map, that that in fact it was dealt with so casually. They sometimes they closed down schools and you know built houses over top of the over top of the grave sites. That that stuff is really upsetting to Indigenous folks. It just reminds them on a daily basis of, of how low down on the totem pole they were in terms of public interest and public concern. And they're, and they're kind of feeling it again now. It's like, oh, okay, we felt really bad about Kamloops and we said all sorts of we're sorries and we apologized. And you'll remember that, that the Prime Minister sort of flew over Kamloops and went, went on a holiday to uh, you know, to Tofino, British Columbia, instead of stopping off and being part of the, the recon reconciliation events in Kamloops. There, that, that was sort of the first start of, of First Nations, uh, Métis people, Inuit people, sort of realizing that they're kind of on their own on this one, that this is a huge concern to their communities. But other people in Canada seem to think, well, we've, we've already said we're sorry. So isn't that good enough? And they're, they're, as they discover these grave sites, family after family is thinking, that was my uncle. 
you know, or that was my, my great grandfather, or that was, you know, that th- these are personal to them. They're intense to them. And, and every time you discover sort of five or six graves, no imagination is required at all to think of the enormous sorrow and the hardship of these children dying away from their families, of not their families not being able to come down and, and, and mourn them properly, and the multi-generations not being able to go back and visit the grave sites. So this is a really, really traumatizing and re-traumatizing process. And I thought I think it's probably fair to say that First Nations thought the country was with them a year and a half ago, and now they're very much feeling they're on their own. Well, and you expressed that concern to me a year and a half ago, I guess just after the discovery of the Kamloops uh, site. Uh, and, and we were assured by government officials, uh, by a number of politicians, that it's going to be different this time. No, this, this, is, this is the, you know, the, the bridge too far. We're actually going to go into this. And, and there were some actions items, of course. You know, the, the, of course, the, the chiefs that went over to, to the Vatican, and of course, the Pope coming over here. Uh, but it was still, you know, where's the information? And now it looks like this is the same old process once again. As soon as it uh, it doesn't become the lead story anymore, people tend to move on with their lives, except obviously, as you say, not just the indigenous people, the, the families wondering where their children and their great-grandchildren were. Uh, and absolutely. And it, again, it doesn't take much historical imagination for any of us to feel the depth of the pain and hardship and suffering that that represents for for, for the individual families and for the communities. It just it just brings back all those memories, you know, and um, I'm old enough that the kids I went to high school with uh, were the last group to go through residential schools in the Yukon. And so the residential schools are not a distant memory of multiple generations. You know, they had friends die in residential school in the 1960s in the Yukon, same in Northwest Territory, same in, in what's now Nunavut, right? So this is actually bring back their memories. And when they discover that, that nobody kept track, um, that, that there is no sort of map of the gravesite, that they didn't actually keep up the headstones in some cases. Kaos's First Nation, you know, they, they knew they know it was a grave a gravesite. Um, the the heads the head markers fell down and they were never replaced. And so basically, if you want to prove to Aboriginal people that they didn't matter historically, you you sort of look at this process and say, this is a great example, a horrible example of the fact that they didn't count in the way anybody else would imagine if this was a, um, you know, a, a Catholic school for non-Aboriginal people, um, there probably wouldn't be as many graves because they weren't as sick when they came to the schools. Um, but they'd be their markers would be there, guarantee that unless the bodies were taken back to their home community. But but is now what we're doing it is a process where we're we're, we're showing it again. And you got to you got to be frustrated about this, right? The world's attention was focused on the Kamloops discovery. Um, and in fact, journalists around the world exaggerated and misrepresented what happened. They, they made it sound even more horrific than it was, and it was horrific. But now you're getting back to this situation where the public at large is going ho-hum. You know, uh, maybe this is a problem for somebody else. It's, you know, and the government's given some money to get the rate. You know, so you're getting all these reports back on ground-seeking radar. They're, they're making an effort to do something, but they're not feeling it in their heart and in their soul. And that's the part that I think is really upsetting, that, that they're the First Nations, Métis, Inuit people are so upset about this. And the country as a whole has sort of put this in the category of a work in progress, report back when your job is done. And, and that's the part that I think I, I anticipated it from before. It happens all the time. We have this burst of concern. And to use the Saskatchewan example, again, there was a, a, a murder of four people in, in Laloche. And the prime minister arrived, the premier arrived, the social workers arrived, and six months later they were all gone and they never got back. 
And, and so that community was deeply traumatized. It was in the headlines for a short while. And we're not there for the long run. That's the part we have to get right in Canada. So, and there's so much more work to be done. And I know that, that one of the, the purposes, of course, of the meeting that's going on right now, of course, is for funding for these sorts of things, too. Uh, and, and we have to wonder about the dedication. I mean, uh, even if the headstones are knocked over, uh, there's a record of who was in the school, isn't there someplace in somebody's archives? So, number one, remember that the Catholic Church has been reluctant to release those records, and they're only releasing them now. And, and if you're a First Nation person whose family went to a Catholic residential school, you're mad about that. Why, what are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Why aren't you making this readily available, right? And the church is worried about liability and blah, blah, blah. We have relatively good records from most of the schools, not all of them, not always going back as far as we'd like, of the kids who were there and, and the ones who passed away. So we know that, you know, Billy passed away in 1937. Um, and we know even the time and date when they, they passed away. But the schools have changed over time. The ones that were there in the 1930s were replaced by bigger schools. Um, and, and this, again, is not uncommon to use a horrible other example. Um, there were places where, where near prisons where when people were executed, um, they buried them sort of in the, in, in the gallows yard. And nobody kept track of them, right? And so they're going back and exhuming those bodies, you know, many, many decades later. So we have the beginnings of the information, um, but we don't have the details. And, and again, it's not so much that, you know, there's money going in. Is it enough money? Nowhere near enough. It gets people started and then the funding runs out and they're only halfway through the work. And, and they're supposed to left us. There's a lot of volunteer labor being put in by First Nations as they're trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's actually going on. And it's more the fact that, that this whole process just shows you how superficial the, the, the nation's response to these things are. Well, we it's think important if we for say we're sorry, story kind of like, like five-year-old kids. You know, you know, I pulled the cookie jar off the thing, and I said I'm sorry, so I'm fine. And mom and dad, you should be fine too because I've said I'm sorry, and it's all, it's all, all taken care of. That's well, kind of the approach we take. If we feel guilty even momentarily, we think the slate is clean. The challenge, of course, is for First Nations. They want to see that the country is standing with them and that there's ongoing concern and whatever. And so now in Saskatchewan, again, when these two discoveries were made just a little while ago, within the last week, um, you know, the prime minister happened to be in the province of Saskatchewan, and the people are very upset that the prime minister didn't didn't come by. Uh, Because the prime minister, when things were in the headlines, was there all the time, except in Kamloops for reasons we described. Exactly. And and now all of a sudden, well, this is, I wouldn't call it a whole hum, but it's, it's sort of become sort of fairly commonplace. And you can see people in Ottawa saying, we can't go to visit all of these sites. Well, even if the prime minister can't go, you can have senior officials there. Exactly. And you can have Doctor, ways we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time of here. Uh, I do appreciate your time today. And, and uh, as you say, the, the short answer to this is we have to keep this story out there and, and, and let people know what's going on. Thanks, as always, for your time on this, Doctor. I really appreciate you joining us today. You're more than welcome. Take care. Dr. Ken Coates uh, from Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about uh, Canada's military commitment to uh, the war in Ukraine. And uh, we know uh, on the program the other day, we were talking about the uh, Ukraine request for tanks. And uh, there's a bit of a glitch there that uh, involves the German government. Uh, there was an announcement, of course, as you heard on the news today, uh, from uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand, who was in Kiev yesterday, that Canada is donating 200 uh, troop carriers uh, to the Ukraine situation. And, and, and that's welcome news. I know it is. But uh, there's some other things going on, and especially in other parts of the world. 
uh, including uh, what's happening with the, well, in the South China Sea, there's a concern about uh, the Chinese government and the Chinese military, for instance, flexing their muscle. And now uh, we hear that the association representing Canada's multi-billion dollar sector uh, defense sector is the latest to sound the alarm over Canada's unexplained absence from a, a security pact that, uh, that has been developed uh, between Australia, Britain, and the United States. And uh, it's it's an economic concern, certainly, that uh, that they're concerned about because, uh, well, there's a, as, as there has been with Canada and the U.S. and these other nations, uh, an ability to be able to, to produce uh, munitions here and produce machines here and, and sell them to uh, our allies. Uh, are we on the outside looking in here? And what are the uh, implications if that is, uh, in fact, the case? Uh, to delve into this, we're uh, pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at both Royal Military College of Canada and also Queen's University. He's also a fellow of uh, Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Christian, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us today. Good morning, Bill. Important topic. It is. It is. And uh, if, just before we delve into what's going on with this uh, pact with Australia, Britain, and, and uh, the United States, your thoughts about um, Minister Anand being over in Kiev and, and uh, the 200 uh, donation, donation of 200 troop carriers, a step in the right direction. And, and it seems as if we're being a little more proactive than we were in the last couple of months uh, about listening to and, and responding to the military needs of Ukraine. Well, I think this is not really what it's about. It's that the heat is on because the Rammstein Group is meeting on Friday. Uh, this is the group that coordinates um, uh, deliveries of military gear to Ukraine, and those defense ministers uh, are meeting at the Rammstein Air Force Base uh, in Germany. Uh, and, of course, Canada has come under uh, quite some duress for, uh, doing, for expectations to do more than it has. So, yes, it's great that we're delivering APCs. These are built in Canada. They're built in Mississauga. Um, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's an obvious product for us to deliver. It's been puzzling why the government has not leveraged our own defense industry more systematically uh, in support of Ukraine. Uh, and at the same time, of course, these are vehicles that allies delivered uh, in the late winter and early spring to Ukraine, at which point I think we sent about 40 of those. Uh, and what we're seeing from our allies is uh, lighter tanks as well now, active discussion about uh, heavy uh, uh, heavy tanks. The UK has already delivered or, or promised 14 of its Challenger 2s. Uh, and so, you know, it's all looking a little late and a little light compared to where the conversation is. When everyone else is talking about tanks, we're delivering vehicles that, uh, that, that, that other allies had already committed to uh, months ago. Christian, maybe you could shed some light on, on that story about the tanks and the request for tanks from Canada. Uh, and we were told that the, the holdup here seems to be the German government. That these tanks are manufactured in Germany, and apparently uh, the Germany has to give a thumbs up for any nation uh, to, to sell them to somebody else or to donate them to somebody else. Uh, so they're waiting, basically, for that thumbs up before this can happen. Is, is that a fair characterization of what's going on? Uh, it is indeed. So this is something that's not widely understood. It's known as the export control regime. All allied countries have it for technology that's explicitly military technology or technology that's potentially dual-use technology, so that has potential military application. And what it means is when Canada sells its own military technology 
to an allied country. Uh, that country has to ask for Canada's permission in order to re-export that technology. And you might remember, for instance, uh, the Bakhtiar 2 drone that was uh, shot down um, um, in the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, um, where it turned out that this had a Canadian Westcam uh, on it, uh, where the government of Canada had never authorized the re-export mm -hmm. of that drone to Azerbaijan. Those drones uh, at the time had been intended for Ukraine. And so uh, Germany here very much holds the cards. The irony of this is that Germany has sent its Gepard uh, light tank anti-aircraft vehicle to Ukraine and has been uh, rather angry with Switzerland because Switzerland produces the ammunition and Switzerland has not been willing to export that ammunition uh, to Ukraine. And yet here is Germany in the exact same position. It's a little hypocritical of Germany that on the one hand they get angry Oh, we seem to have lost Christian. Uh, we'll try to hook up again in just a couple of seconds here. Uh, this is a very important topic, obviously. We want to find out about what Canada's commitment to this. And uh, as I say, especially when it comes to, to the, the tanks that Ukraine is requesting right now, uh, the, the fact that Germany is involved in this is, is a, a, a rather novel twist. But apparently you can see the rationale in it, though, because, you know, you don't want to be giving equipment to one country and then having them turn around and sell it to uh, somebody who... Uh, might be a, a questionable regime, shall we say. Uh, not that that necessarily would happen here, but I mean, you just want to put some safeguards in so so that sort of thing doesn't occur and, and would not be even uh, considered because of, of of the impact it might have. And uh, so I get that, but uh, the, the surprise and I think the concern on behalf of the Canadian government, as, as Christian was just stating, uh, is that why can't the, the German government just say, yeah, do this? Because there are other countries that are willing and able uh, to also acknowledge uh, Ukraine's request for uh, for more tanks, uh, but they can't send them yet until Germany says, yeah, it can do that. It, and it's got to be awfully frustrating for, for the Ukraine situation, for President Zelensky and, and those that are making the request, uh, and just as frustrating for the Canadian government that seems more than willing to be able to, to help in, in whatever way they can here with their contribution. But it's, it's government getting involved and government red tape, I guess, that's uh, so much of a part of this. We'll try to get Christian back and get his comment on that. But I also want to talk to him about uh, the other uh, partnership here that's uh, going on between Australia, Britain and the United States. Something that we had talked about in the past uh, and it's, it's starting to come to fruition. And, uh, and the voice of concern uh, that we heard from Ottawa yesterday is not from the government, not from the military even, but from, uh, from the, those in that industry that, who are building those things. I, we got Christian back. Okay, I, whatever happened, there happens. I guess the, the, the technology isn't always ideal in situations like that. Christian, you were making a point here about about the German government's involvement in this, and uh, I, I guess the question here is: since you said since the defense ministers are meeting in Germany uh, in just a couple of days, uh, are you confident that they'll address this and get this issue resolved? Uh, well, it'll require um, a consensus. Um, there's a bit of hypocrisy here on the part of Germany because uh, Germany has been very angry at Switzerland for not allowing the export of Swiss-produced um, uh, ammunition for its Gepard anti-aircraft uh, tank that was delivered to Ukraine. And yet Germany here is very much sitting, um, uh, has the lever when it comes to export controls of the Leopard 2s um, uh, because it owns the proprietary rights to that technology. So it needs to consent when allies send those tanks. Uh, there's about 2,000 of those tanks around among NATO allied countries. Um, uh, Kiev needs about two to 300 to have a very realistic chance of pushing back against the major Russian 
of spring offensive. Make no mistake, that offensive is coming with Ali Gerasimov now in charge of not just the Russian armed forces, uh, but of operations in uh, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, But there's many models of the Leopard 2 tanks. So there'll need to be an agreement of which models are they going to send operational tanks? Are they going to send tanks that sort of are sitting currently in disuse and need to be uh, prepared? What kind of tanks are we going to send? So Canada, for instance, has about 90 of these tanks. 40 uh, we use for training purposes and we run them into the ground, largely in uh, Alberta and in Gagetown. And 50 we sort of keep for possible deployment purposes. So we keep them sort of in excellent shape. So which of these are going to go to Ukraine? And then also there's the question is, anybody who gives up uh, tanks will need to get new tanks from Germany. So um, uh, on who's going to get what tanks in what sequencing? Um, is Germany prepared to re-export some of the newer tank technology that it has to allies? Uh, so this is not an easy conversation. So I can see how the Germans are kind of, uh, we're not going to say yes until uh, we've got all the minutia sorted out here. Uh, and we'll certainly follow that story and hopefully get some clarification on that in the just a couple of days. Let me, if I could, pivot over to what's going on in the Pacific right now. And, and I think you and I have talked in the past, uh, Christian, about the, the organization. Well, it's it, the acronym for it is, uh, is AUKUS. That's AUKUS. That's Australia, the UK, and the United States. Uh, is getting together. Canada's not invited. And, and a number of people have been cons- concerned about that, especially people in the defense industry in this country who use uh, that, that, those partnerships we've had with these other countries, uh, of course, as, as a, an opening to, to sell the products. And they, they purchased them, and that's been good. They, they're afraid they're going to get shut out. Uh, what's the story here? Why isn't Canada part of this? And the, the, the rumor we've heard is it has a lot to do uh, with the Canadian government and their their movement towards the the government of China that they've been you know dragging their heels when it comes to, to playing hardball with China and and this is a reaction to that from from the Australians the Brits and and, and the and the Americans is any any truth to that? Well, so let's first make it clear that um, uh, Vice Admiral Bob Octorloni, who's the uh, chief of Canadian Joint Operations Command, so the command that runs domestic and um, continental and international operations for the Canadian Armed Forces, went on record as saying, this is a real problem because the government has sort of been underplaying this. It's no big deal. You know, it's like your traffic accident on the side of the highway. You know, don't go rubbernecking. Go look the other way. Everything's going to be all good. Uh, and the military is clearly sending a message that it is not all good. And no, it is not all good. Um, Canada has really fallen into serious disgrace uh, with its key allies. And this is a real problem for Canadian foreign policy, um, because we think about the international security permit with the U.S. at the top and the five eyes countries, so the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, sort of right below that. So by not being able to play in that league, it seriously diminishes our ability to assert our foreign policy interests. But what is not clear is, is this a function of our allies saying that Canada needs to make much more of a commitment in terms of defense investments um, and the like um, if it wants to be invited in? Or is it that the government has decided it doesn't want to be uh, playing because playing would mean it having to make precisely the sort of commitments that the government feels are for a reason too political, too expensive, whatever it might be. The fact is that an alliance and, and, and a relationship that has served us in unbelievably well since the end of the Second World War in terms of our interest in international stability, that the government of Canada would opt out of that arrangement 
um, is uh, it has has massive replica- ramifications, not just for our reputation, our credibility, but also for our ability to assert our interests. And of course, in the current international security environment, as dangerous as it is, the government essentially relinquishing a key instrument to assert our interests is also an abrogation of not just its international responsibility, but its responsibility to Canadians. Well, and I know there have been some moves in the last little while from some folks, Minister Jolie specifically, uh, talking about this and talking about taking a harder line with China. Uh, but I, what's that old phrase in politics? You can talk the talk, but you've got to walk the walk. And I guess they're not quite uh, uh, confident enough that Canada is actually making that commitment. Is that is that the essence? Uh, so it's hard to gauge to what extent AUKUS and China are uh, related uh, but certainly there is an impression that the government is a rather late coming to the realization about uh, how to contain China and a Chinese influence. And there's considerable bewilderment among our allies about the position that Canada continues to take, believing that it can somehow thread the needle uh, between our allies and still having this rather sympathetic uh, attitude towards China. Larger countries such as Germany, they can maybe afford to do that because they have the economic prowess and they have the leadership capacity within Europe and the European Union, as well as NATO to do so. Smaller countries such as Canada, uh, what it means is it basically means that uh, we've undermined our credibility and we now no longer have um, a voice at the table. We have a seat at the table, but we no longer have a voice at the table. And what's so puzzling about AUKUS is this is an arrangement that many European allies have tried to join and have effectively been rejected. It is a closed club. And yet Canada is opting out of the most desirable defense, security, intelligence arrangement um, arguably in the world, is simply um, bewildering to me. Well, and to others as well. And as you say, there could be huge ramifications with five eyes and everything else involved in this. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for the time today. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, thank you, Bill. Important conversation. Have a lovely uh, morning. You too. Christian Luprecht uh, from, of course, Royal Military College and Queen's University. We'll continue to follow that story and uh, and uh, the efforts of uh, some people in the cabinet anyway to try to uh, mend some bridges, I guess, that, uh, that seem to have been burned over the last little while about that. It's uh, As we had said on the program the other day, the world's a more dangerous place than it was even six months ago. And uh, Canada, I think, is coming to that realization, but they're going to have to start looking at some of these partnerships that they have had and maybe taken for granted. And, uh, and there's anti up. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I think that's what the Americans uh, seem to be telling uh, the government over the last little while. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.